Good morning, you guys. So to start our time together today, I'm going to read a passage from Romans 12. So if you want to turn there with me, you can. Um, We're going to be in verses 9 through 14, which says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Thanks, Ellie. If you guys want to turn to Colossians chapter 4, we're going to do a a one-time study this morning um, in that chapter. So Colossians chapter 4. How are you guys feeling? Tired, renewed, refreshed, energetic. As we begin the new year, there's a lot of things that go through our minds, I think, to begin a new year and a new season. But I I want to remind us of some things this morning as we go into 2022 um, that I think we can often forget just in the busyness of our lives. I don't think it's intentional. But to begin our time this morning, I want to remind us of something, and then we're going to go through some um, Christian essentials that we see in Colossians chapter 4. These are things that I hope that we can really lock into our hearts and minds uh, for a new season here as a ministry and as individuals who uh, seek to love and serve one another. But I want to remind us of this at the very beginning. The Lord himself wants to enter human hearts and dwell there. The God of the universe wants to dwell in human hearts. I think that's kind of a, a life-altering thing. That doesn't sound like a normal thing. It doesn't sound like something that we often would hear somebody say in a public setting. You come and say, you know, God wants to dwell in your heart. That might freak someone out in the Starbucks line. Um, but you guys, th- there, there's a reality that God wants to dwell in human hearts. He wants to, to be in the midst of our lives. He doesn't want to be just around us, even though he is. He doesn't want to be everywhere as he is. He wants to be everywhere in the sense as well of being within us, being in our hearts and dwelling our lives, leading and guiding us on a moment by moment basis. As believers, I think we know this, yet there's a question that I think we need to ask when we, when we agree with that statement, that God wants to dwell in human hearts. There's a question we need to ask ourselves, and the question was asked really well by Augustine in his uh, very well-known writings called Confessions when he said this, And how shall I call upon my God, my God and Lord, since when I call for him, I shall be calling him to myself? And what room is there within me, whether my God can come into me? Think about that question, that second question. What room is there within me whether God can come into me? A lot of times we, we recognize and we may even desire for God to come inside of us, but have we made room for him? We sing it at Christmas time. Let every heart do what? Prepare him room. Why does your heart have to prepare him room? Because God wants to dwell in your heart. God wants to dwell within you. 
And have we made him room to not only dwell within us, but is there space for God to spread out, to expand within, to enlarge? Have we given God every open door in our lives? Behold, Jesus said, I stand at the door and I knock. He says, if anyone will open up, I'll come in and and I'll commune with him. I'll have fellowship with him. But a lot of times God enters a house, our hearts, with locks on closet doors. With doors that are shut to him that we try to keep him out of. That's not how this relationship works. There aren't parts of me that I can keep closed off to God. I want him to come. I want to prepare him room. I want him to come and dwell within me. And what room is there in me right now for God to dwell? What room is there within me for him to fill and expand? Are we willing participants in his desire to enlarge our hearts to be like his? Am I a willing participant? It's funny because a lot of times, not funny haha, but funny hmm. It's funny how a lot of times we know the right things to say. Like we have Christianese. We have things that we say that are just biblically sounding. You know, they sound like they come out of the Bible. They sound like something a Bible saying in. I want us at least to go in our under really stop and process very often. Think about deeper being willing participants in his desire to grow our hearts. We know what God's desires are when we read his word, but so many times I don't know that I'm really that on board with what he wants to do. And you know this when you get to the parts of your life, the times of the seasons of your life, when there's struggle. When there's battles going on, when there's, when there's suffering that's happening, because a lot of times we start to question whether God really likes us or not. God must surely hate me because everything in my life's going wrong. You think because everything is going good in your life that God approves? If that's true, there's a lot of rich pagan people that God likes. Clearly, that's not how we gauge whether God is approving of what's going on us or not. Sometimes the greatest seasons of growth are going to be those greatest seasons of struggle. They're going to be the seasons where we're suffering. But are we opening our hearts? Are we submitted to the process? Are we willing participants in his desires? And I think that we need to echo the question of Augustine in in prayer this morning as we begin. Lord, what room is there in me? What room have I made for you in my heart to come in and to powerfully work, to do inside of me what you most desire to do? Let's pray as we begin our time in his word this morning. Lord, as we've already cried out to you on behalf of people who are hurting and suffering. Lord, we long for those who are going through difficulty. Lord, those who are facing life and death situations, those who are are physically ill. Lord, even for ourselves as we struggle in, in a variety of different ways, whether it be emotionally or mentally or financially or physically, Lord, there's so many things that we can be battling at one time. Lord, are we willing to come to you and rely upon you to minister and to work through us even in the midst of our mess? Lord, do we recognize that you bring us through these seasons to grow us, to change us, to strengthen us. Lord, I pray that there wouldn't be a closed-off heart in this room, mine included. Lord, that we would all be willing to ask, what room is there within me so that you can come in and dwell? Lord, so that you can fill spaces of our heart. Lord, maybe it's just this time of year where we're often reminded of 
beginning things fresh, turning a new page. Lord, my, my mind is so aware right now of just areas in my life that you need to govern. Struggles within my heart that I need to surrender to you. Lord, we confess our sin. We confess our brokenness. Lord, we repent to you. And we ask that you enlarge our hearts and that you would encourage us from your word, that you would strengthen us. As the scriptures say, Lord, would you strengthen our weak knees? Would you make our backs stand up straight again? Lord, so that we can serve you. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, reads this way as Paul is concluding this letter to the church. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. I want to break these down by looking at some essential things that Paul points out inside of this very short section towards the end of the book of Colossians. The first thing is, and these are really going to fall down under this, this, this construct of Christian essentials. These are things that we must have activated in our lives. We need to have these things at work in our lives. Christian essential number one that I see in this text is devotion to prayer. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Don't miss any of those words. Devotion to prayer staying alert and doing it with thanksgiving. Kind of draw attention to those key words as you read them. I can't imagine any Bible-believing church body member who would openly contend that prayer doesn't matter. I think we know better than that. We know better than that scripturally. We know better than that not only because we read a verse like this, but because we see all the other verses in scripture that not only command and encourage us to, to pray continually, as Paul would say to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. But we see Jesus himself, God in human flesh, prioritize prayer to the point where the disciples would wake up in the morning and go, where's Jesus? Oh, he's off praying. The disciples were falling asleep. What was Jesus doing? Still praying. Jesus prayed all the time. We know that this is essential. None of us, I don't think, would contend that it doesn't matter and so stating that prayer is important is generally, generally agreed upon. However, are we a people who devote ourselves to prayer, who are devoted to it, who give ourselves to it, who prioritize it, who see it as so vital and important that we wouldn't dream of moving forward without prayer? Are we constantly diligent to pray? William Barclay said this, even for the best of us, there come times when prayer seems to be unproductive and pointless, and we penetrate no further than the walls of the room in which we pray. At such a time, the remedy is not to stop, but to go on praying. It is well said that in those who pray, spiritual dryness cannot last. In those who pray, spiritual dryness cannot last. The Greek word that, that Paul uses for stay alert literally means to be wakeful. It means stay awake. Now, I see this as both a spiritual thing and a physical thing, because I don't know about you, but when it's time for prayer, a lot of times that's when I nod off. You know, someone's like, I always pray at night. 
I just at night, I like to pray before I go to sleep. I usually get about three words out and I'm asleep. So I'm a real bad night prayer. If I lay down like, oh, Lord, I'm done. Like I'm out. I don't make it very far. Maybe nighttime's a good time to pray for you. But being intentional about prayer means that you are staying alert, not only spiritually, but physically preparing yourself to focus on prayer. We have examples of that physical sleepiness overcoming the apostles in moments of worship and prayer on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and we also see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're to learn from those, those situations. We're not unlike them. We laugh at the apostles because we're just like them. We understand them. We get it. And we're to learn from those situations. And I think the key to remaining wakeful, both spiritually wakeful and physically wakeful, is a heart of thankfulness. And that's what Paul draws our attention to here. He says to remain thankful in a, in a posture, in a position of prayer. Devote yourselves to it. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. When we're thankful for something, when we're excited about God and what he's doing, we typically stay alert or awake. My kids don't sleep much around Christmas. Neither do I. I'm a real excitable person. But you guys, my kids don't sleep much around that time of the year. Why? Well, they're very excited. They're very excited about something that's going to happen. They're very thankful for the season. They're thrilled about it. And so they can't sleep. It keeps them awake. You guys, thankfulness is the attention grabber and the attitude changer for our prayers. Our prayers should never be devoid of thankfulness, even in the worst of times. Because even when we're going through great seasons of struggle, there is still so much to be thankful for in Christ. Amen? There's so much to be thankful for. The problem is, oftentimes, that our perspective is off. We can be in peril and falling apart, but if our thankfulness to God is rightfully being expressed, our prayers won't be sleepy or forgotten. They'll be alive and life-breathing to us. We ought always to be thankful. When we're not, it's not a matter of whether there's something to be thankful for. It's our perspective is askew. We're looking at the world too much. We're looking at ourselves too much. We're focused too much on me. We need to get our eyes back on Christ again. That will give us cause for rejoicing in, in hope. As Paul writes in Romans 12, 12, it was part of what Ellie read to begin our time with. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Paul often in his letters and his writings ties these things together. The heart of thankfulness, the hope of Christ, the patience in the midst of struggle, and the persistence in prayer through it all. I, I feel that, that quote so often. I can like feel it in my bones. When I read that quote from William Barclay, like, a lot of times it feels like I can't push prayer out of the walls of the room I'm in. It's like it's not getting out. I can't like, do you ever struggle in prayer? Do you ever not know what to say? cool. Me too. Like it's, oh, Mike's a pastor. He always has something, he always has something to say. Well, that may be true, but it may not be worth saying. But when it comes to prayer, a lot of times I don't know how to express what's going on. I can't even think of things to pray for. Do you ever draw a blank in prayer? You know, there's like a hundred thousand things you're supposed to pray for. This is why I have to keep a list. Cause I just don't remember. You're like, oh. and you start thanking God for your shoes, you know, and the fact that you can breathe, God's like, yes, you're welcome. Keep breathing. But like, do you ever get to that place where you feel really like, I just don't know what to say? 
You guys, the answer is not to leave off praying. It's to persist in that prayer, to keep pushing forward, to keep working through it. How often do we lose hope? How patient are we in difficulty? How persistent are we in prayer? It's like Paul's been spying on us. It's like he knows. It's like he was a human being just like us. A robust prayer life will most likely not begin robustly. And we'll certainly not always feel robust. It's like marriage. You know, you think about it, you're like, oh, I just can't wait to be married. Why? You don't know what you're doing. I mean, it's a good thing. I'm just joking. But like, you, like, you realize it's difficult to push difficult time at it, even when you feel like it, only caring for someone. You have to put in it through the diff- keep working. You don't feed. You realize that like prayer between us and God is this relational connection between us and the Lord. We have to work at it. It's not always going to be easy. It's not going to come simply. A robust prayer life comes from praying in all seasons, whether we feel like it or not, because we're following Christ's example and recognize that nothing worth doing comes easy. You know, nobody is automatically good at any sport. I mean, they may have some skills and some talent, but if they want to contribute to the team, they have to go to what every day? Practice. You got to work at it. You got to step up your practice game. You guys, that we have to practice things. We have to work at them. We have to work at relationship. It's not because God is running away from us either. Don't get the wrong impression here. It's not because you have to work at making God happy with you in prayer. He's there. It's that we need to invest the time, focus our minds, self-discipline, and recognize that there is so much blessing and encouragement that the Lord wants to pour into us in those times if we can dial down our noise. If you're feeling spiritually dry in this season, if you feel spiritually dried out, prayer is a Christian essential because those who pray, for those who pray, dryness will not last. If you persist in prayer, you will be refreshed. I think much of the time we remain in seasons of dryness for long periods of time is because we do not persist in prayer. So church, as a group, as a body, we want to pray together not only on Sunday mornings, but exclusively on Sunday nights. And individually, we need to be people who pray. There's some great apps out there. I have great recommendations if you want that will remind you throughout the day, take a moment and go pray. Take some time and pray. Here's some ways to log that in. Here's some scripture to pray over. Here's some scripture to pray out loud. Praying through the Psalms is a powerful reminder of the goodness and the richness of God, not only through his word, but in our hearts and in our words. So Christian essential number one, we must be people who are devoted to prayer. The second in this this text that we see is in verses three through four. Paul says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should. Christian essential number two here is reliance on God. And I love this this draw of our attention to the reliance upon God because of how unique it is in Scripture, because of the way that Paul does this. Again, something that we understand as being biblically true, but Paul gives us a unique look at it. When you pray, he requests of the church in Colossae, pray that God opens the door for the preaching of the word. Pray that God opens the door. 
Paul desires that the Gentiles in Rome, where he is at present, where he's currently in chains and imprisoned, would come to understand that salvation had been offered to them in Jesus. Remember, don't forget, this is a prison epistle. Paul's in chains. He's not a free man. Notice Paul didn't ask them to pray for his freedom. Remember that we talked about this recently in one of our studies. Remember when Paul and Silas were singing and in the jail in Acts chapter 16? Remember that? Remember they were singing in the jail in Philippi and, and the Lord rocks the whole jail and the gates, all, all the doors open to the cells and the, the shackles fall off and everyone's like, jailbreak! But Paul and Silas stay and all the prisoners stay. And you're like, what in the world? Why didn't they leave? Clearly that was a sign that God was releasing them all from their, their bonds and they could just run free. No, because if they had, the Philippian jailer would have died and they stayed. He gets saved and his whole family. And what do you know? A little church starts in Philippi. You see, they were sensitive to the leading of the spirit, even though all the obvious physical factors said, this is it. You're free. Paul understands that physical freedom is not an essential. Being physically free is not an essential when it comes to being effective for Jesus. He says, open the doors. Pray that God would open the doors for the gospel to be preached so that we can explain the mystery to these Gentiles that, that salvation is for them because of Jesus. What matters most to Paul is that people know Christ, not that he is free to do whatever he wants. American Christian Church we are really bad at this. We are really bad at this because of lack of suffering and persecution. We're really bad at prioritizing the gospel. I'm, I'm pointing the finger at myself at prioritizing the gospel over our comfort and our freedoms. Paul says it's not essential. What's essential is that the doors are opened by God for the work of the ministry to happen. And so we need to essentially rely on God to open those doors. He did not ask to be freed from his chains. He asked that the church would pray for God to open the door. There's been a cry from some churches, this kind of like war cry, we're going to knock down the walls. We're going to kick open the doors. There's this really strong, like aggressive phraseology used about how we're going to take this world by force and do this and aggressive and stuff. You know, I appreciate the enthusiasm. As you can tell, even if you're a first time here, I'm a very enthusiastic person. I'm controlling myself right now. That, that might shock you, but I really am. The people that know me well, my life's really under control right now. I appreciate enthusiasm. I'm a big fan of it. But if Paul asked for the church to pray that God would open doors, then that's what I'm going to do. You realize we're meeting here in this building not because we kicked open any doors. The Lord literally placed us here and opened all the doors through the graciousness of another church. Through the Lord ministering to their hearts and circumstances that I cannot orchestrate. Transform meets here because the Lord opened every door on his own. And I'm just going to ask you guys to do this. The first two things that we've pointed out in this text in Colossians 4. Would you guys just devote yourself to prayer as a church for all of us to continue to see God open doors? Because I have no intention of kicking any down. I have no intention of taking a run at some brick wall to see if I can knock it over. I'm just going to let the Lord open it. And here's what we need to pray for, church. Let us pray that, the, that God would give us the boldness and the courage to walk through every door he opens. 
because that's where the real struggle comes. When God opens a door, may we be bold enough to step over the threshold and trust him, to rely upon him, to do the work, and to receive all the glory. By the way, another aspect of this, if we're kicking open doors, where does the credit go? It goes to us. Why? Well, you kicked open the door. If the Lord opens it on his own, where does the credit go? Where does the glory go? This is easy. It goes to the Lord. He receives it. Isn't that what we want? Yes. All right, you all get more coffee afterwards. Okay. If Paul asked for the church to pray this way, that's what we want to see happen as well. We need to pray that the Lord would open doors and that we would be prepared, as Paul states for himself in Rome, so that I may make it known, so that I may make the mystery of the gospel known as I should. I like how he puts that in there, as I should. This is my calling. This is what I'm supposed to do. Let us pray for God to open doors at work, school, home, church, everywhere so that we can share Jesus and may we make him known as we should. There's one more thing about this. And I just want to draw our attention this one more time. I mentioned it before, but just to be clear, physical freedom is not required to share Jesus. It wasn't for Paul and it isn't for us. Barclay said this as well in the same section that I read to you from before. He said, prayer should always be for power and seldom for release. For conquest, not release, must be the keynote of the Christian life. Conquest in the sense of the victory of the cross, the victory of Jesus, should be the keynote of the Christian life, not release from whatever it is we're going through. It's okay to ask God to heal you. It's okay to ask God to Deal with things that are wrong, that are going badly or poorly in your life. But when he says no, as he did to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, are we submitted to him to say, my, my weakness is going to allow the perfection of God to work? God says, my power is made perfect in your weakness to Paul. Are we willing to submit to that? Because he says, I'm just going to celebrate and glory in my weaknesses then. That's hard. That's not an easy statement. That's not like, so just glory in your weaknesses, church. Be warm and filled. I, I don't feel that way. I'm not stoked about my weaknesses or my struggles, but I want to be. I want to be excited about weakness in my life because I recognize that God's power is perfected in it. Conquest for the kingdom, not release, must be the keynote of the Christian life. Christian essential number three that we see in verse five, wisdom in the world. He says, act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. People who know wisely, the definite act wisely toward outsiders, Jesus towards them. Definition of tact is sensitivity in dealing with others or with difficult issues. Tact is so important. I used to teach about it all the time to my, my class when I taught at a Christian school, I, I've taught young guys through their, their freshman and sophomore year. A few of them are in the room. And, and as we were going through that class, I, I would talk to them often about tact, about understanding the situation you're in and not, not making blanket statements to people, but knowing the person you're talking to and how you can reach them and, and where they're at in their life. And there's, there's some work that goes into wisely acting towards outsiders and ministering to them. It requires tact and being sensitive in dealing with what's going on in their life, meeting them where they are. 
Making the most in this verse comes from the verb to buy up in the Greek. Making the most of the time means to buy up time. In other words, it has the idea of finding a bargain or actively looking for an opportunity. So not only are we looking to God in prayer, devoting ourselves to it, asking for him to open doors for us, but we're also to be actively looking for opportunities to minister to the lost. Are we prepared to do that? Are we prepared to minister to people? So many times, you know, we, we have these conversations in, in smaller group settings where we're like, you know, I really want to minister to more lost people. I really want to share the gospel with people. I want to be more evangelical in, in, in reaching out. But it's funny. I don't know about you guys, but most often when I get up in the morning, that's not the first thing that's on my mind. That's not really what I'm thinking of when I go to work. I got to get work done. How much would it change us if we were really seeking the Lord in prayer and asking him to equip us for the people that we're going to interact with that day? Whether it's at the coffee shop or our coworkers. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you have coworkers? I better not raise my hand that no, no, Jesus. <laughs> Who on staff doesn't know the Lord in this place? No, but like, how many of you have coworkers that don't know Jesus that you've been praying for and longing for to know him for some time now? Maybe start asking the Lord to equip you with the right things, to give you that tact and wisdom to reach them, to find the opportunity, to look actively for that opportunity to minister to them. There needs to be an activation of our desire to draw people to the Lord through our actions and not just an awareness that there could be an opportunity. It's not just like, well, I'm going to be here. There's, you know, there could be an opportunity. I sure hope I don't miss it but an active seeking for it, looking for opportunities. That's one thing I love about our YWAM crew who's on their way to, or actually is in Thailand right now, is those guys look for opportunities all the time to witness to people. We were downtown for the lighting ceremony uh, the day after Thanksgiving. We, we invited the church, we went down there, we we're downtown watching the parade, and I'm standing at, 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 you know, at Sherman, at 4th and Sherman, middle of the street. It's the only time you can stand in the middle of the road because it's parade time, so you can stand right in the middle of the road. And so I'm standing out there, I'm watching the parade start, and I look to my right, and the YWAMers are all around this gal sitting on the curb, some gal I've never seen, praying over her. They didn't know her. They just started talking to her at the street corner and started praying for this gal, ministering to her. I love that. They were actively looking for it. They were seeking an opportunity to reach people, to minister to people during a time where we were just out having fun. Because it's part of their life. It's part of who they are. It's in their DNA. I love it. It encourages me so much. And, and I, I thought of this. I was like, you know, so many times you see the, the terminology used in the Old Testament for the prophets who, who would prophesy and talk about these, these people who would sit in the watchtowers, but they weren't looking for anything. They're like these, these prophets, these false prophets were coming to the king saying everything's going to be fine. And the God's prophets were like, no, everything is not going to be fine. The nation is in decline. They're in sin. God is going to judge this sin. And they're like, stop listening to these false prophets. They're like watchmen who sit in the tower and aren't paying attention or sleeping. They're sitting up in the tower. They went up to the tower as a watchman. But just sitting in the tower doesn't mean anything. Sitting in the watchtower doesn't make us a watchman. Actively looking does. So church, it's not enough for us to just stand there and go, present. We have to do. 
We have to be seeking opportunity, led by the Lord, not forcing things to happen, but when he opens doors, walking through them and seeking after the lost. Paul doesn't just wish for us to just see those opportunities, but to have godly wisdom on how to handle them when they happen. Verse 6 expounds more in this direction. This is our final essential I want to point out. And that's that we have tasty speech. It's my favorite one to say. We need to have tasty speech. Verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Season your speech with salt. There is way too much of Christianity, I think, that'll dully depress people (laughs) rather than sparkle with life and be encouraging. Our speech to the lost is not to drive them away or to make them think that we're so much better, we have so much more figured out than them. It's not our goal to be filled with the wisdom of God and blow people away with our intellect. It's our goal to be attractive to a lost and dying world. It's our calling to have the speech that is winsome of the lost and the broken. 1 Peter 3.15 is often given in in reference to this passage. There Peter says, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's a beautiful verse. In my experience, I've heard that in the apologetic sense used in a way that you're defending your faith. Now, it's not a bad thing to defend your faith, but you realize that in the midst of defending what we believe and proving that what we believe is true, that that message that we convey should be attractive to the hearer. It's not a defense that pushes them back. It's an invitation into a better understanding of who God is. When I defend my faith, I'm inviting people to be a partaker of it. I should be attractive in the way I draw them to it. And a lot of times I think that we, we lose the person to win the argument. Married people, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can win the argument with your spouse and lose the war, so to speak. Bad terminology, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. Is the goal when you're in a disagreement with your spouse to beat them down with your argument? It better not be. Or the couch is going to have a permanent imprint of your body on it. You guys, you understand what I'm saying, right? Like you are to be winsome in your conversations. And even in the defense of where you're standing, there should be an attractive draw to yourself. Because what you hold dear is the truth of God. And he is love. And he wants that person. He longs for them. There should be a tasty speech that comes out of our mouths. I just like saying tasty speech. But you guys, I think that we forget this a lot of times, that there's supposed to be saltiness and not in the negative, but in the positive. Salt adds flavor. There's attractiveness to it. There's a preservative being offered. Even in the ancient world, salt was used as a preservative for things because they didn't exactly have advanced refrigeration or advanced refrigeration. But you guys understand, there's a couple chuckles. You guys We have to remember that uncompromising truth should be delivered with tact and graciousness graciousness in an attractive way. Is there something, okay, understand this in the spiritual sense. Is there something spiritually irresistible about you to your coworkers? 
Is there something spiritually irresistible about you to the people around you that draws them towards the Lord, that draws their attention to Jesus? Not, not to you, not to your personality for your glory. It draws them to you because they want what you have. They long for the peace. They long for the, the centeredness and the solidity and the graciousness and the encouragement. One of the greatest compliments that I ever got in the workplace, whenever I would get, I, I get so excited is that I would encourage people, even on bad days. That the crew, even when they were struggling, w- when they were having a bad day, that I would somehow encourage them. I'd crack a joke, or I'd, I'd, I'd take something off their plate. I just wanted to be an encourager. You realize that believers shouldn't be Debbie or Donald Downers, right? Shouldn't be like, well, you know. Like that old saying, like from when I was a kid, it's all going to burn, so who cares? I mean, I know that like that's not like like that was said in in, in a way like when in my parents' day when it was like well, it's all gonna burn so who cares about it just love Jesus. By the time I came here, I was like it's all gonna burn. Why do you love it so much, sinner? Like that's that's how it was addressed to me a lot of times. You guys, that's not the Christianity that that we that we want to convey to people from the truth of God's word is that Jesus said, "Come to me, all of you." who are weary and heavy laden. In Matthew chapter 11, he says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon yourself. He says, because I am gentle and lowly of heart. Jesus calls us to the the nature, the very essence of his heart, which he himself defines as gentle and lowly. How attractive is the God of the universe, the creator of all things, when he says, I'm gentle and I'm lowly and I want you. I want you with me. The most powerful being to ever exist wants an intimate relationship with you and I. So much so that we become his body. We become interconnected with him and his very characteristics and nature flow into us. He is the God who wants to come into us and dwell and expand within us. Have we made him wrong? James, after talking about the damage that we can do through our speech, finishing off this last point in James chapter 3. It's a pretty well-known chapter talking about the, the tongue and the damage that we can do with the things that we say. And after talking about that, he goes on to say this in verses 13 through 18. It's a great companion passage to what Paul's just given us in Colossians 4. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. Notice that gentleness is begotten from wisdom. True wisdom begets gentleness in us. One of the things that people should see in our lives, church, is gentleness. That there's a tenderness to us. How interesting when we think about how Jesus described his own heart, I'm gentle and lowly true wisdom of God begets gentleness in us as well. But if you, he says in verse 14, James 3, 14, if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, 
without pretense, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Think about cultivating ground. What are you sowing? What are you putting into the ground? Do you cultivate peace? As a church, we ought to. Church, how desperately does this world need believers to show them how to have a civil discussion that leads to productive change? There's a lot of arguing going on still. There always has been, but there's there's a lot more avenues for people to argue now, to disagree with one another. It happens not just in the world, but in churches as well. You guys, we need to cultivate peace and a focus and an attractiveness to Jesus in the midst of disagreement. The wisdom of God calls us to good conduct done in gentleness. And my hope for us, you guys, is that we see the power of Christ enable us to reflect him in these ways this year, these essentials, that we would be devoted in prayer, that we would be reliant on God to open doors, that we'd have the wisdom to act, and that tasty speech that attracts people to his salvation kind of ties together everything that we desire to be as children of God and as his body. I'm going to invite the guys to come up uh, to close on worship. We're going to take communion this morning. And the table's up here and has the the, the juice and the, and the bread is underneath. So you can just take one little set and the they're all self-contained like within each other. Um, but I want to remind you why this is important. In Luke 22, during the Last Supper, verses 19 through 20, Jesus instituted something new. He instituted a new aspect to uh, the dinner that night that was not traditional for them. And he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus instituted this remembrance of his sacrifice that was going to come. He was going to be betrayed on that very night. And so he introduces this bread. He says, this is my body that's going to be given. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And he had them partake of that as well. To remember his broken body and his blood that was shed. To draw attention to himself. And Bonhoeffer said this, and it was beautiful. He said, the day of the Lord's Supper is an occasion of joy for the Christian community. Reconciled in their hearts with God and the brethren, the congregation receives the gift of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And receiving that, it receives forgiveness, new life, and salvation. It's a remembrance and a reception of all the goodness and the things that God has done. That Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. I'm going to give you guys a moment to just pray. To settle your hearts before the Lord. To take the first thing that we talked about from Colossians 4.2 of devoting ourselves to prayer. To be persistent in prayer. And I'm just going to encourage you to pray. And we're going to start singing some songs and the table is open. You can come forward and take the elements when you're ready and you can take those between you and the Lord as we worship. But I want to encourage you before we start singing, before we take communion, let's take a moment and just 
seek the Lord individually in prayer. Let's devote ourselves to prayer for a moment, to silence, because, you guys, there's a beauty to being silent before the Lord and allowing that silence to transition us to thankfulness. The silence and and, and the quietness of our hearts in prayer should lead us to this place of thankfulness and gratefulness for Christ, for his sacrifice. And as we come to that place, come and take communion. Come and take communion and remember him. Thank him. It should be something that we celebrate because we recognize that he has cleansed us from our sin. He has won our hearts over. He has delivered and transferred us from death into life. So let's take a moment and pray. Lord, we take this time quietly. And we ask, Lord, that you be glorified in it. That you would speak to our hearts individually. Lord, that we would not be resistant to what you have to say. Lord, that as we remember you by taking the bread and the cup, Lord, that we would be refreshed and encouraged. As we sing and as we praise you, God, that we would be renewed. Lord, use this time, use this silence to draw our attention to you. Lord, that thankfulness would spring up from our hearts for all that you are and all that you've done for us. Let's just take a moment. Let's keep our heads bowed, our eyes closed. And then as the Lord leads you on your own, feel free to come up and take the elements.